Hello and welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Tim Scott. And I'm Peter Stockham. This episode is a little bit different. We want to talk about uh, scientific publishing and how it's changed, even in a fairly short time, like five or ten years, and where it might be going. You may remember a couple of episodes, Tim and I have played around a little bit about um, us being editors and on the boards of various fake journals. That was all tongue-in-cheek, of course, but it's really quite a serious issue. These journals are generated in order to make money. Sometimes it's very difficult to tell the difference between a real journal and a fake journal. So to help us get some clarity on the subject, we've asked Professor Roger Bayard. He's a well-renowned author with over 900 papers, chapters and books, thousands of citations. And importantly, he's a founder and chief editor of Forensic Science, Medicine and Pathology. So Roger, tell us how you got into scientific publishing. Look, I'm not sure what happened. I mean, English was my best subject and I liked history as well. And then I just got into pathology for reasons that escaped me and um, started writing and researching. And the way I learn about things is I write about it. So you start writing papers, then you uh, start reviewing papers. Then I became the editor of a journal and it's interesting to see the whole process, you know, how it works from beginning to end. And Some people are really good writers, but they're terrible reviewers. Other people are really good reviewers, but bad writers. Uh, you, you started up your own journal. Why, why did you actually start your own journal? Well, I didn't actually start it. At, um, Springer decided that they would uh, start a journal, and um, um, there were four of us, a guy in England, Germany, US, and me. And uh, okay. why do you start it? That's a good, good question. What I thought is useful is a very general forensic journal, uh, for, particularly forensic pathology, but uh, you know, one that doesn't have so much genetics or so much anthropology that's just, just a, a general read of pathological principles for people. I've got an area in it called Images in Forensics where people just have, they're not unique cases, but they're interesting cases, well-documented, it's sort of a teaching exercise. I have a forensic forum where I'll, I'll write a, a commentary on something like, say, Shaken Baby, and then I'll, I'll invite people from all sides of the argument to contribute, you know, sort of eight or nine contributors. Uh, I got into trouble in a meeting in uh, France. Um, there's a quite a, uh, an assertive American guy who um, I could see the microphone going back to him. I'm thinking, oh dear. And uh, he stood up and said, Roger, this is not so much a uh, question as a comment. How dare you? How dare you actually give these people air- airspace, you know, let them put their uh, their ideas in writing. And I said, well, that's the point. Mm. You know, now mm. we've got Science. their ideas in, you know, we've captured them at this point. So I like to encourage that sort of debate. So so it's fun. So what about when it comes to the actual reviewing process? Now, reviewing, reviewing is a very strange process. I don't understand it at all. Um, mm. There's no reviewing school. When I was in uh, Ottawa, when I did my training, we had a really good um, uh, teacher who uh, we used to have these journal clubs. And one day he came in, he just gave us a paper and said, I want you to write a review for that for next week. And he taught me the old way to review. And that was to say, you know, you summarize the paper. In this paper, the authors have done this, 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 and this. Their conclusions are this. So that you can actually show them that you've, you've done that. And then you say, well, I think that the conclusions are justified. They have done this, this. I would make these recommendations or else the conclusions are not. So very formal. But nowadays people don't do that. They just tend to freewheel. One of the things that's important when you're reviewing is do not say, I think this paper should be accepted or rejected. That is not the reviewer's role. That's the editor's role. And it's very difficult if I have a paper that two reviewers say is nonsense, I think is nonsense, and I've got some reviewer helpfully saying, I think this should be accepted. Well, you know, your opinion doesn't count because, you know, you're supposed to be giving that to me privately. Yeah. So you've got to juggle stuff. And you've also got to make sure that the reviewer is not being vitriolic and horrible to, uh, to writers, to authors. Um, so you've got to help people. But then it's so frustrating because I will, I will get papers that are obviously just put together uh, so randomly, the, the references aren't even right. And that's one of the things I think is important. That when I review a paper, I look at the references first. 
And if you haven't got the references right, like you've got Forensic Science International at one level, you've got Friends Science at another, you've got the the date behind the authors or at the end, what it means is that you have a very, very obvious lack of attention to detail. So if I come across something in your paper that I'm a bit dubious about, I will assume it's wrong mm. because mm. I know that you don't pay attention. And people will rely on EndNote. I had one paper they sent back four times because the reference was wrong. And finally, they said, well, look, we're really sorry, but the EndNote just didn't come out right. Well... No, you're the one that's supposed to be checking that. Well, I remember when I started reviewing papers, I had no idea how to review a paper except for seeing my own papers and yeah. the comments that come back. But that was the only yeah. training that I'd had. There was no other there's training There's no for workshop. It. There's no book that I know about. I should write. I was going to write something on how to review, but then I thought I'd get so many emails about it that I can't face it. <laughs> I think um, someone in our field, Hans Mara, has written a document to that effect as well mm. recently. There are some journals who, with talking about reviewing, it just reminded me that, you know, the reviewers have to declare who they are. So it's, you know, the author can see who the reviewers are. I don't actually like that because the, when it's a blinded review, when they're not seeing it, I, I feel I can be honest and make reasonable criticisms. If authors know who you are, you often get endless emails. I get endless emails sometimes um, from, from authors saying that, uh, you know, uh, your old journalist completely corrupt. Uh, you know, the, the review time was so quick that obviously it wasn't sent out for review, you know, uh, which is not true. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it just goes on and on and on. So uh, the idea of that is to try and give people confidence that this and keep it transparent. That, make it know, transparent. That everyone yeah. can see, well, this has actually yeah. been reviewed by Roger Byer. Yeah. So, it so it's, it's a okay. great, great again, concept. But then I can see your point. But then you get into these sort of, you know, internecine warfare, which, you know. In, in your journal, do you choose reviewers yourself or do you offer the opportunity for the author to choose their journals? I'll take recommendations. Yeah, so. I take recommendations. Um, yeah. And it's interesting. Sometimes they're very good recommendations. I'll Google the person. I'll think, that's great. Yeah, thanks. Other times, they're people in their own department. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that, that's going to work. You know? Yeah, no, I, I missed that one. Yes. Uh, or their, you know, their mother who thinks that they, you know, they're great. Um, <laughs> but reviewing, as I said, it's, I mean, who do you choose? Um, do you... Do you pick somebody that's well-known in the field? Do you pick somebody that you know? Um, it's it's very random and uncontrolled, I suppose. Um, I uh, If I see a really good paper that has significant problems, then I'll try and pick a very good reviewer, somebody I know is you know, going to spend a lot of time on it. If I see a paper that I think is you know pretty average, then I'll just send it out to you know somebody who's reasonable in the field but may not be a particular expert. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, very rarely, if it's so bad... I'll just reject it myself because I won't. I send it out to my senior editors to start with. Then we go out for external review. But sometimes it's you know it's it's not written in English. Um, it's been plagiarised from somewhere. The the references are non-existent. You, know, you think there's no point in burdening people with that. I can legitimately just sort of say no thanks. Do you try and choose reviewers who because you have multiple reviewers? I don't yeah. know how many you have for your journal, but. You might have three, Good question. three or so. Right? But <laughs> actually, I think it was four. 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 Yeah, yeah. Do you choose reviewers that have different expertise for particular papers? Like, okay, I'll choose reviewer one is this person because they've got an expertise in this. Yeah, yeah. Reviewer two knows more about this aspect yeah. of the paper. So if I have a uh, you know a forensic pathology paper and I know that somebody's written in that field, then I'll choose them. Sometimes what you do is you can you can look down and see what references the author's citing, and you go, okay, well that's obviously a person that's well known in the field, and you'll just approach them de novo. Um, but yeah, you, you try and you try and match the paper to a reviewer as best you can, um, which is difficult sometimes because sometimes the stuff that comes in is is quite left field, and you know there's nobody who'll review it. And one of the worst things you can do as a reviewer is to say yes, I will review it, 
and then after a month say, oh, actually, no, I'm too busy. Because that's delayed the whole review by by a month. And I have had one paper that had five reviewers do that. So we've blown out to five months and we're still at square one. That's really unfair. Mm. That's one of the things about reviewers. It's not so much in forensics because there's not so much money involved, but some of the big clinical collaborations when there's billions of dollars involved in the mm. drug company stuff, reviewers will can a paper from an opposition group just to sort of put it on hold until they can actually get their work out or they will take the idea. So, you know, a reviewer is in a very... You've got to be very ethical about it because, you know, you get a paper that comes in that has this idea and suddenly you've got this person's idea and it hasn't been published. Um, you cannot then go running with it and do it yourself, you know. It's interesting. And then the whole thing that uh, Pete mentioned about predatory journals coming along and how we deal with those. I mean, the whole field is in a state of flux, I suppose. Even just in the last five to ten years, it's changed enormously, hasn't it? It has, actually. I mean, if we're going to talk about predatory journals, I mean, what are they? They're, they're basically journals that you can – or they're, they're websites where you can get a paper published on anything as long as you pay. So if I pay $1,000, I can get a, a paper uh, accepted in these these journals. They're bogus journals. They just run as businesses that buy people in the middle of nowhere. Um, you'll never be able to track them down if you try and go through the websites. But uh, the papers come out and they look uh, like legitimate papers. The journals look like legitimate journals. Um, there are so many tricks that they use. I mean, I'm the editor of Forensic Science, Medicine and Pathology, which has got a blue cover. There's the Journal of Forensic Science, Medicine and Pathology, which also has a blue cover, which is predatory. Uh, and people starting off publishing don't know. It's, it's very difficult. I mean, the, the papers look the same. The journals look good. They say they're, uh, they've got an editorial board. Uh, they've got an impact factor. They often have their impact factor, which is an assessment of how good a journal is, from a bogus impact factor site. So the whole thing is corrupt from one mm. end to the other. You know, online journals, there's some very good online journals, and that makes it very difficult to determine what's a real online journal where you're paying a legitimate fee and what's one where you're just paying to get stuff published. Yeah, we have to really discriminate that. There is, in general terms, open access. Yeah. These predatory journals are all generally open access, but there are some good open access. Absolutely, yeah. And they're the yeah. ones that are really suffering, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how much suffering there is. I mean, it's for me, the whole thing is disintegrating because, you know, I can work out if I'm um, looking for a journal to submit to what's, what's predatory, what's not. But if I'm doing a paper review, I've, I've actually pulled in papers from journals and I've thought that they're okay. And I've referenced them. And then I've realized subsequently, no, it's actually a predatory journal that I've mm. pulled in. So, mm. you know, e even I, after, you know, three decades of doing this, get, get tricked. Particularly young researchers don't understand the significance of them. And there are some academics who actually encourage their students to publish in these journals because they're getting publications through. It looks good. Um, the academics are paying for it. But it's actually a predatory journal. And when it goes on your CV, it's on there forever. Yeah. And that's the difficulty. We had an application a couple of years ago from a young pathologist to come and work with us. And I looked at his CV and he had six papers and four of them were in predatory journals. And uh, I said to my colleague, I said, I'm not touching this guy. I said, it may be not his fault, but, you know, he's he's really got a problem here. I was speaking to Tim earlier about this and I don't actually recall ever, I mean, I went to uni a fair while ago, but I never actually recall having sessions or any lectures or any direction from the university about how to do publishing, what publishing is all about, even the very basics of it and how the publishing system works. Well, I, so don't I, think, see, um, I don't think they do, actually. It's interesting. And I, I did the editorial on uh, predatory uh, publishing, I don't know when it was, um, a couple of years ago now, yep. and uh, I sent it around, but it's it's not common knowledge. I would have thought it should be, you know, you, you get a, a, a package when you start uni and one of these is, you know, 
this paper highlighted, be very careful. Yeah. So, and I can see what's going. What could happen is that um, eventually, because you you sort of feel like, oh well, did I just miss that lecture about journals? Okay, I'll just follow whatever my colleagues are doing, and if they're just in the same sort of era as you, and only a year or two older, they might be also already been sucked into this area. And before you know it, you've got a whole generation of scientists who may not actually know what they're. Well, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. We sometimes sit around with our research groups and we think, well, okay, we've got this, this bit of research and, you know, we've got a paper that's ready to go. You know, and we'll send the student off to, you know, find some journals that you think will be appropriate. And I'll come back and we'll just say, no, you can't take that one. You can't take that one. You know, that one's okay. Um, yeah, so it's, it is a minefield. I remember I did a study, which I mentioned in the editorial a couple of years ago. I started on April Fool's Day and for an entire month, I, I just recorded every invitation to uh, submit a paper. I, I didn't I threw out the editorial boards, the you know invitations to talk on coastal zones in China and all that sort of nonsense. I had, I think, nearly 50 invitations in that month, and it would have cost me 50,000 US, but I could have had a CV. I could have bought a CV in that month if I'd had that money yeah. um, and had 50 papers. That could look quite quite good. One of the things, too, is that there's a, not only are these... Sometimes these journals will be set up for three days. You know, The three of us sit together and think, okay, let's start the International Journal of Toxicology. Um, We'll get some submissions, we'll get $1,000 each, and then we'll close in a few weeks and we'll move on. What some people have done is they've actually taken legitimate journals, and this happened in, in Canada, um, and it's been then sold on to these bogus publishers who then are already on PubMed with this journal or whatever. And so it, it looks really credible because of that. Uh, there was a journalist in Ottawa who um, did an expose, and he took a paper on... Um, HIV or something, and he just spited out HIV and put heart attacks. Then he put a few bogus uh, graphs in and uh, paid his thousand dollars and got it published. And he said that when you look at it, some of the papers actually have insert heading here, so the people <laughs> haven't even put the headings in, but they're citing it as a publication. It mm. is actually a real threat to science, isn't it? Because it is. people who maybe people who know that field really well will be able to tell the difference, but. Yeah. Politicians, etc. People who actually make decisions in the world. Well, it's a threat. Can't to the tell com- the difference. Threat between. to the community and to the courts. I mean, in, you Google stuff, and you know, with the best intentions possible, you know, Dad's got diabetes mellitus, so let's have a look at it, and you come up with some bogus paper, or in the courts, you know, we've this actually happened. I was in Malaysia and I was talking about it, and one of my colleagues there said that the year before he'd been involved in a case of a head trauma, I think, with a child, and in the middle of the court suddenly this paper appears that refuted everything that he said. And he said it looked really legitimate. He said you know, it just shocked him. Um, but it was in a predatory journal. So my recommendation to him was, well, you know, what you do is you say, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I, I'm not aware of this journal or this paper. Can I have 15 minutes to sort of, you know, read it? You get outside as quickly as possible. You Google predatory journal and find out if it is. And what listen, what they pay Google to... So <laughs> yeah, the predatory journal comes up the top. <laughs> I got an invitation to go to a, a conference on predatory journals, and I, I thought... That'd be great, but maybe it's a predatory conference. <laughs> How do you know? Do, these conferences that you get, I mean, we get emails about them all the time oh, yeah, as well. Yeah. Do they actually happen? Are these conferences real? Or- yeah, yes and no. I mean, um, sometimes the only people who turn up will be the invited speakers, uh, and there'll be five of them. Yeah, uh, that's embarrassing. I got invited to, uh, to, this is what started off the editorial, to go to a meeting and talk on coastal zones. And I just sort of said in the editorial, my experience at Coastal Zones is taking my golden retriever Lucy down to the beach on weekends, um, <laughs> which Lucy likes, but it doesn't make me an expert. So you get invited to all of these weird things. Unfortunately, sometimes it's in your area of expertise. And so you think, well, maybe I should. My next book is on um, geriatric uh, pathology, forensic pathology. And my co-editor in the States sent me an email last week saying, look, there's this geriatric conference in London. Do you think we should go to it? 
And, and I hear my back said, um, it's predatory. Um, you know, mm. we should keep away from it. Well, it is hard to pick. It is, yeah. And, you just got to work it. What you do is you, you look at the conference and you see who the plenary speakers are. Are they people that are known to you? Are they people in the field? You look at the journals and you see, you know, if you see the editor, Google or uh, uh, PubMed, the um, Google Scholar, the, the editor, and just see whether they have any publications. They won't. Um, of course, it's interesting. The, the ones that um, I think it was, uh, this was, I'll read from it. Uh, it was, Dear Bayard, greetings for the day. Let's <laughs> exploit yourself to the world because we believe that you are the one that inspires the common to change the recitation of emerging world. Um, <laughs> Now, I don't know what that means, but no. I think Sounds it's like good. the... Uh, stuff. So, you, so you're not changing the recitation of the emerging world? No, well, saying, I, you know, I've, I've given it a bash, but uh, yes. <laughs> but it's like the things from Nigeria that are misspelled. You know, um, they're trying to weed out people that maybe can't discriminate as well. Yeah. And so almost by putting in deliberate misspellings, they're getting rid of a certain group of people who think, oh, no, this is bogus. Um, interesting. So they're selecting people that may be uh, less able to discriminate and that are more vulnerable. Which is really predatory and horrible. So a recent one I've got was um, asking me to send manuscripts to uh, some journal about food science. Uh, but the English is actually quite good. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if we can use that anymore to discriminate. But I get, the giveaway was they said, Dear Dr. Caitlin, that sort of said to me that probably I wasn't the person <laughs> they were looking for. Um, but interesting, towards the end, they say that uh, if you go to our website, we're currently undergoing, undergoing some maintenance, and so this journal might not come up. Yeah. And I, yeah. I actually went to this. It's probably the first I've actually been to the website because I'm usually a bit frightened something's going to come and invade my computer, but nothing happened as far as I know yet. And it looks pristine. Mm-hmm. It really does look like a genuine editor's oh, yeah. journal. And then you, they've got uh, various news articles, and you click on the particular journal they were, they were asking me to contribute to, this food journal, and... There wasn't anything there. It just didn't work. Oh, they're, that's, oh, that's right. Yeah. They're having maintenance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's why that's mm. not turning up. It's often, you know, Cherry often sends me stuff from um, Los Angeles. You know, she's the editorial assistant, <laughs> Cherry. So I guess the point of all of this is to make money, right? People are trying to make oh, yeah, money yeah, by yeah. doing this. They make so a lot of money. Just going back to basics then, how do uh, publications make money? You know, legitimate publications. What's their source of income? Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting question. They don't. I mean, my journal, for example, um, it's a Springer journal out of New York. Um, it, you know, they, they sell subscriptions, um, but then they died off because, you know, people don't want papers so much. So, so what Springer does now is, and El Solvier and the big publishers, they have packages they sell to universities and institutions. So the package will be that if you pay us, you know, 20,000 bucks a year, you can access electronically all of these journals. So that's where the money comes in, but it's there's touch and go. Um, with book publishing, it's interesting. The publishers went through a phase where they were trying to get rid of hard copy, and so one of my books, I think, uh, was selling for nine hundred US, um, an atlas, which was really irritating because it was worth about two hundred. But they were trying to push people into um, into getting electronically, and they'll say things, you know, they won't do an index for you. And I said, well, you've got to have an index. No, no, people can just sort of, uh, you know, they can just search it electronically. I said, well, if you've got a hard copy, you can't. Yeah. And they said, well, just take keywords. I said, that will give us 40 chapters with the keyword sudden death. You know, that's not really useful. Um, mm. So I think publishers are up against the wall too. They don't know which way it's going. I've actually written an editorial, and they call it Publish and Perish at the Same Time. Um, <laughs> and it's just the, the agony you go through. I had, I had one... Um, it was a very well-known English publishing house, and uh, the editor lost 26 images out of a chapter. And he said, well, why don't we just cancel them? He said, no, why don't you find them? So he found them and put them in upside down. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he got his revenge. 
So open access journals of which not all are predatory, some are legitimate journals, but they just have a different principle of the way that they work and the they way do, that yeah. they promote yeah. science. They want to promote science to everybody, I suppose. That You could say that's the principle behind it. Yeah, which, so, is, a, which is a good principle. Um, University of Adelaide Press, before it was closed, uh, had that uh, principle. Um, I did a book with them a year or so ago, and it's free access, free download, which I think is wonderful. It means everybody can actually access it. So I, th- I think that is great. But um, it's a different approach. That you know, Some of them have very high impact factors. They're, they're doing um, you know, really well um, because people are publishing with them. And if, there's, a, of course, the other model where there's a sort of a hybrid model. So if you want your paper to get more traction, get more viewers, you can submit to a traditional subscription-type journal, or what used to be subscription yeah. and yeah. pay a bit extra money or quite a bit more money, about yeah. $1,000 to $3,000. And it'll be a free access to everyone. That's right, yeah. That's obviously better than paying a predatory journal. but It is, but it's a lot of money. <laughs> and yeah. it still goes through the, the entire um, review process. That's right. So one thing about these open access journals is that at least they're available for all the scientists who aren't working in academia. Because if you're working for a university, you obviously get access through the subscriptions that you were yeah. talking about. Yeah. But a, a scientist who's working in a forensic lab, let's say, who doesn't necessarily have links to a university and their organisation might be fairly small. Yeah. They can't afford these subscriptions to journals. They're basically locked out of science. Yeah. How do they become aware of what's going on? Or, or pe- yeah. people in the developing world even, scientists in the developing well, world. I think that's where PubMed is good. And, you know, with PubMed and a Google Scholar, you can actually get people's uh, addresses and you can email them and just say, could you send me a PDF of your paper? And, you know, I think that's a legitimate thing to do. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it is very difficult. I remember the first time I uh, saw Internet Access, I was in Germany uh, sitting at a colleague's desk and she just clicked up and there was the paper because when I started off, you would wander over to the library when the PubMed books, the Index Medicus book came in. You'd thumb through it you know, manually. You'd fill out a form. You'd take it to the librarian. She'd sort of fax it off somewhere, and then it would come back on a donkey about a year later. Um, it seems unbelievable. Yeah. And I imagine the publishing process would also be massively sped up through that. So it used to be if you wanted to send a package in internationally to get reviewed, send it off to the, the journal, then it gets sent off to three different people all over the world. Yeah, yeah. It can take uh, probably over Well, a year it's interesting. That, uh, yeah, there's, there's one sort of major American forensic journal that didn't do um, uh, online submissions and reviewing until about probably six years ago. It was extraordinary. Mm. Yeah, wow. so uh, they're still doing hard copy. It's a lot of work. Oh, it is. Yeah, no, it's 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 you know it's good and it's bad. I mean, it uh, it certainly speeds the process up. But of course, um, you'll get, for example, with um, I was editing one book, and uh, this publishing company had a particular software, and to download an image, a figure that an author had submitted, would take five minutes. And this was a um, three hundred chapter contributor encyclopedia. I was talking to some of the uh, the opposition publishers, and they were all laughing, saying, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how this this works. So the opposition knew how bad it was, but not the publishers themselves. So, yeah, sometimes it can be really frustrating. I want to go back to what you said a little bit earlier about you used to have to go and look at the, what did you call it? Sorry, oh, the, Index Medicus, in, the, the, yeah, yeah, as it came out in hard copy. And yeah. so that's the sort of job that PubMed and even Google Scholar does now. Can you tell us how how does a PubMed choose its journals, That, for, for example, or SoftFinder or any of those yeah, sort of companies? Do they choose... Um, Will they accidentally pick up the predatory journals? Some, uh, it's interesting with the various um, databases, some will only take journals affiliated with their company. Um, PubMed is, is, of course, really good, and it takes a fair bit to get into PubMed. And there are some, you know, national forensic journals that are still not on it. Google Scholar, on the other mm. hand, takes a lot. 
and unfortunately, they do take predatory journals. They take they take blogs. There's all sorts of weird stuff on, yeah. on Google Scholar, and it, it, you know I, I find it fascinating. And suddenly, you, you're sailing along, and you've suddenly got 300 less citations. Um, <laughs> where did they go? Presumably, they're weeding out some of the stuff. But yes, I, I don't know how they they function. Probably PubMed is the best of the lot. Although I use both. Um, I also use Google. It's interesting what turns up on mm. Google that uh, you know may not necessarily be in one of the other databases. Mm. So often Google will give you, I mean, if you know you're looking for a good journal, you search that through Google Scholar first and it often will have a PDF link immediately. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's quite handy. So you mentioned impact factors before, and that's one way to assess the quality of a journal. Yep. And now there are, there are a bunch of different um, oh, types yeah. of algorithms and things, so it's like a weighted impact factor. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how any of those... I don't know if you know how they work, those algorithms. I don't think but. anybody does, actually. Mathematicians <laughs> sit in small offices and look at stuff. But, you know, the, the impact factor, for example, it, people have now said the impact factor is very useful for comparing journals within the same discipline. So you can't compare, say, my journal, which got an impact factor around two, with the New England Journal of Medicine, which is, what, 70 or something. Um, because it's the different fields. Mm. Forensics, we have very low impact factors, which is a measure of you know how often papers are cited because forensic people don't write. So if you don't write, then you don't cite and therefore you don't get you know good, uh, good coverage. Whereas in, say, genetics or internal medicine or cardiology, they're writing all the time and they've got you know, huge reference lists. Mathematics, you know, they might have a paper with you know, one or two references. So, you know, their impact factors, and I haven't checked them, I'm sure they're quite low. It doesn't mean that their journals are actually any less important. It's just it's not the right parameter to judge it. Um, but in a field, I think that it just shows you, you know, where, where, you, where you're sitting. But other things like, you know, how well distributed is the journal? It may be a society journal that everybody reads. It doesn't have an impact factor at all, but everybody looks at it. So that's useful. I guess there's no one measure that really... Can capture all of it, how it, the no, impact that no. a publication is. Well, I was, I was a bit quality. distressed um, this last round because our um, forensic science, medicine, pathology dropped below two, um, which I was you know, cutting my wrists about. But uh, <laughs> my editor in uh, New York said, "No, no, don't don't beat yourself up. You know, the journal's doing really well. There are other parameters." And I thought, "I don't, I don't want to know about them." <laughs> so, why don't forensic people write? Do you think is it just because they're too busy doing the casework? I mean, you've been a, a practicing pathologist throughout your career and involved in academia? I don't know why people don't write. I think that they're not trained to do it. The best answer to me is, you know, I can't be bothered, you know, um, just do the job and go home. That's fair enough. Um, I write because I think it's important because I like doing it um, and I encourage my colleagues to do it. When you started out as a young pathologist... No, I, I never was a young... Never pathologist. young? No, no. Did, did but, someone mentor you in that and say... This is how you write, and or this is why you should write, even, or was that just something that you had inside? You just had no. I had a couple of it. good mentors. I really like writing, and I found that I, as I said, learnt about stuff as I wrote. But uh, I had a very good. Um, I decided to do a research elective in uh, in when I was in Ottawa, and uh, my uh, mentor there um, gave me a project because other people were saying, you know, you come and tell me what you want to do. Well, I don't know what I want to do. He had this very very circumscribed project on salivary glands. But Irv said to me, um, I don't care if you don't do this. Uh, you know, I'm not going to lose sleep. And he said, if you want to do it at you know 3 o'clock in the morning and just sleep in during the day, that's fine. Um, and at the end of it, we, we did actually really well with it. And he said what he wants out of life is for his students to do better than him. And I think that's a really good philosophy. Students are not grist for the mill. They should be shown how to do stuff and they should be promoted. One of, I've had a couple of really good students in recent years. One of them spent 18 months in Harvard um, and came back with some amazing results. Uh, so that was really 
pleasing. That was the, probably the best day of my academic career when these two young students got their PhDs together because I felt that, you know they were going to go forward and uh, really achieve stuff. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. So you're involved in university life as an academic. Do you feel that – you obviously publish a lot anyway, but do you feel that pressure – or do you sense that pressure among your fellow academics that you must publish? Because I guess that's what leads to people perhaps falling into the trap of putting things into predatory journals and so on. Yeah, the publish or perish idea. Um, oh, there's certainly a pressure to publish. Getting grants is important as well. I mean, you've got to you've got to actually do that. But it's not. Um, there's a lot of assistance, and the university milieu is, you know, here is really good in terms of collaborations. And I think that's one of the things for forensic people is it's very hard for us to get grants on our own. And so if you can actually buddy up with um, an established research group, I, uh, when I moved to the university, got involved with the neuroscience group, and we uh, we came up with all sorts of interesting things. Uh, I'd be sitting down with them and I'd, I'd be talking about the effect of alcohol on head trauma and how we believe, you know, that if you're drunk, less trauma can kill you. And... Um, one of themselves, we've got data on that. Um, you know, they had some animal studies showing that um, it was related to magnesium levels. So we actually then developed an experiment and data to show that alcohol does impair your response to head trauma. So when I go to court sometimes, the lawyers will say, you know, have you ever, you know, can you tell us about this? Is there research on this? Have you actually done research yourself? So if you're doing research yourself, that sometimes is handy in court. So yeah, I think the university, I, I think the Europeans have got it right having the sort of combination of university and forensics. And often the facilities are based in the university, like the charity university in Berlin. So I think that's one of the, one of the, the, f the problems with the English system now is that the forensic sort of buildings have moved away from universities because I think the cross-fertilisation is great. Yeah, it's always good to get a, a broad range of different people's yeah. different experience. So getting back to predatory journals and the whole concept of, of that scary industry, uh, what do you think we can do about it? How can we raise awareness amongst our peers and I don't university know. students? I mean, I tried writing this this editorial. I, I talked to people. I've got a uh, how to publish um, presentation, which includes predatory journals. And I've, I've spoken to, it's interesting, I spoke to the uh, National Coroner's Meeting on it, and um, they were astounded. They'd never even thought of this. But I don't think that's getting the message across, actually, because um, I think there's just this huge number of new postgraduate students and recent graduates who just aren't aware of, of what's going on. Yeah, and I think even not just recent graduates, people who are already in the system and are not necessarily paying attention That's true. to what's yeah, been going yeah. on. No, I, I, I did talk about it in Malaysia, um, I think, earlier this year, and, and a couple of you know senior pathologists came up and said, oh, you know, we didn't really not thought of this. Um, mm. yeah, and if you look at the, um, the people who get caught, it's recent graduates in non-Western countries who need to actually get some runs on the board. Yeah. Um, and, of course, these journals often give quite good discounts to uh, places like India. You know, whereas it'll cost me $1,000 to get published, it may cost them just 100 So there's that incentive as well. So, the, the, you know, predatory is a good name for them. These, these are not nice people. Yeah. It's kind of like the scientific equivalent of fake news. Right, but how do you solve that yeah. problem? No yeah. one's come up with a solution to that. But yeah. The worst thing is, I think, if, if someone does accidentally submit their paper to a, one of these journals, then that research is lost mm. because they can't really publish it again. Well, we got caught, it was about two years ago. Uh, it was really interesting. It was with some of the herbal medicine stuff I do, and uh, I got a, an email from uh, my mate who said, uh, Strength, they want, to, they want us to pay $4,000. I said, what? Is it predatory? He said, yeah, yes. Yeah. I, I didn't realize. Of course, we did. 
Um, and that's the thing, you know, when you get this sort of, it's going to cost you this, then, you, you know, that's when you stop and you say, well, I'm not going to pay. So is know. it okay? Because I've seen uh, when we recently got a grant, part of the money was for information dissemination. And someone said, oh, that's probably for publishing journals. And I said, but you don't have to pay money to publish in a journal. Is that what you think it is? And they said, yeah, everyone does it. I think it's just something that, you know, you need to sit down with your research group and just say, okay, you know. We've looked at these. Um, this is this is not on Jeffrey Beale's list. Excellent. We're okay. Yeah. So for more information about Jeffrey Beale's list, you can just do a Google search on that. But that's um, I don't think he's actually publishing it anymore. I think someone else has taken it over because it was a bit. Is that right? I haven't. It might have been a bit too overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, I haven't checked it for a while. I know he was taken offline for a, for a bit. Um, yeah, but if you just put Predatory Journal into Google, it'll bring you up various websites, and you know there are whole um, really good sites that will show you. How to identify a predatory journal? You know, bad spelling. You know, people you've never heard of in the field, all, all those sort of things. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll put some uh, references in the show notes. There's a really good podcast by a local media organisation here, and Roger's review. Uh, sorry, Roger's editorial. We'll put them there as well. So, thank you very much, Roger. Really appreciate you coming in. Um, I think My this pleasure. will be valuable for a lot of people who are listening to this podcast. It's valuable for me. So, I thank you so. very much. Good. Day. All right, thank you. And if you want to contact us. You can email us at thetoxpod at sa.gov.au. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.